Uh, we didn't get past verse 9 last week. And uh, we ain't going to get past verse 9 this week, probably. But that's okay. We saw a great concept of, and, uh, of God opening doors. You know, uh, in, the older I get and the more I'm, I'm in the ministry, and I guess maybe just the more, you know, I'm in the Bible and, and just come with, with age and maturity and seeing the patterns that God does, uh, I, am, I, am, I am always awestruck at, at God's timing and everything. And, you know, young Christians, young pastors, uh, young Christians in general, they, they have, that, that's something that they're not, they don't understand. And it takes some time, and I talk about time, I'm saying 20-some years maybe, 15, 20 years to, to really uh, get that grasp of down of everything has to be in God's timing. We are people are, who are famous as God's people of making things happen. And that's not the way you want to do it. You don't want to make things happen. You want things to happen in God's timing. I remember I taught you a message a while back about uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. It's been a number of years ago. And it focused on the aspect that uh, God had the right man in the right place at the right time. And boy, that is a great lesson that you want to learn. And that's exactly uh, what God does. God has a time frame that he wants things done. I think many times we get the idea that we're trying to fit God into our time frame. And the true reality is, as God's people, we need to get closer to God in the Word of God, learn the principles of God, so we can better fit into God's time frame. But it starts with understanding that God's timing uh, is everything whenever you're going to do anything for God. And uh, doing it in God's time and not our own. And, you know, and that brings up uh, the importance of a continued spiritual growth. You know, I, this church has been here now for over eight years. God's been very good to us, and we, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's grown to the point where uh, it's the stability of it with the men and the women who, who really have a handle on the Word of God really forms a strong base. But, you know, I, I'm never satisfied with that. I'm always combing this church for any person who has a hint of, of leadership ability and then to take that person and to help them grow. And I also understand that in the day and age that we live in, hey, let's be honest, it takes a special kind of person today to be able to stand for the Lord in the day and age that we live in. I mean, it's easy when you're here, you know, and, and uh, every time I preach a message like this, I get five or ten people come up, you know, and, I, and they're well-meaning, and I do appreciate it. Uh, and they always say, well, you know, you can count on me. And, and, I, and I understand that, and I do appreciate that. But, you know, Bible talks about counting the cost. And it costs something to uh, stand for the Lord today and I'm just not sure that most of God's people are willing to pay what it costs. I mean, it sounds great, and it probably makes us feel great when we say it. But the reality is, after 40-some years in the ministry, uh, I just know that that's, that's not true. It takes a special kind of person today with all the pressures and all of the things that come from your friends, from family, from your job, from just the pressures of this world. It's not an easy thing to, to make that stand for the Lord, and and uh, its spiritual growth and the continuance of that is really the key. You know, there's a great principle found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I'm sure most of you probably already know it. You've heard me say what I'm about to say a thousand times, but it always bears repeating. That verse says in verse chapter 4, verse 13, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And that's a great verse. But that verse is probably one of the most misconstrued verses or misunderstood verses in all of the Bible. And it's partly because of what the new Bibles do to it. 
The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. All your new Bibles, and if you have any other Bible than a King James Bible this morning, it'll say something like this. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And that's a, that's a lie. And that's a terrible breakdown of biblical principles. We absolutely get the idea that, you know, that we just get saved and we go to church and then when you kind of like pay your spiritual dues that, you know, that God's got a big gospel dump truck up there in heaven that's got spiritual maturity in it and when your name pops up on the list, he backs it up at night while you sleep, the angels pull the roof off and he dumps it all down, you wake up in the morning and you're ready to go. It would be nice if it worked that way, but that's not how it works. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It isn't God that comes down and strengthens you. It's that God strengthens you through the wish, the things that you do for Him. And that's why, you know, most people, they never grow because they never do anything. You know, the great misconception is it's not God just giving you the strength to do a work for Him. But when you do do the work for Him, then He strengthens you through the work that you do. And God will give you something to do. You do that faithfully. I'm faithful over little things. God makes me rule over many. Then He gives you the next thing to do. You're faithful in that. He gives you the next thing to do. You're faithful in that. That's how it works. You know, that's why things like the right timing and the right place where we're at in our church, if God would have given us this homeless ministry uh, uh, when he did, and, and look how it all came about, all because we had too many people go in one place and, and then God threw that open the door to, to what we got. And uh, it's, it's the gateway. Things like this are basically the gateway uh, to leadership in our church and uh, in any church. You know, Sir Isaac Newton, he lived way back when, and uh, he was kind of an early physicist, and he thought about gravity and all of those things. And he put forth a theory, and it's a true theory. He says that for every forward motion, there's an equal reaction motion. In other words, like shooting a gun. The bullet goes out, but the gun recoils. And that's, you know, and that's true. That's the way, that's the property of science. That's absolutely true. But it's also true in ministry. For everything that you do for the Lord or somebody else and you put out to do, there's an equal reaction that comes back to you. And that would be Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Just like when you shoot a gun and you ever saw a big howitzer goes off, the barrel slides back and if they don't dig them in the dirt, it'll jump clean back. Why? Because the force of sending something out is an equal force of when it comes back. And you'll see that in any church, this is true in any church, the real people who really get the job done are the people who have come through a process where they're growing spiritually and working with people involved in ministry, doing things that get done because that's what the verse says. And when you put out the energy to do something, there's an equal motion that comes back, and that is your spiritual growth. And that's why hands down in any church, I mean, I don't care what church you go to, the people who are going to be spiritually mature and be really uh, doing what the work that needs to be done are going to be the people who have grown from what they're doing with others. And that's just simply true. I watch it in the prayer groups. I've watched some of you take a prayer group and watch how that just a simple little thing like that has made you or mold you, or basically it showed you what you're really made of. I mean, it's nice to say, oh, I'm in charge of a prayer group. But it's also nice to turn in your reports to Bob every week when he wants them. You see, with responsibility comes accountability. And everybody says, oh, I'm a prayer group leader. Not in Bob's eyes, some of you aren't. Because it goes beyond just doing what and taking a title. And that's the way of everything in ministry. That's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. 
And uh, we're going we're gonna to work on those things because leadership is, is about you doing things by for people, by design, that has a, an opposite effect in your life. In any church that you go into, I don't care where it is, you'll see this effect immediately. Old Bob Jones Sr. Is a, is a great old guy who's been dead now since the, probably the middle 50s. But he had, uh, he had some of the greatest quotes that had so much wisdom in them and so much, some of them are just hilarious. And I remember hearing tapes of him and hearing guys talk about him. Uh, he was, I was three or four years old when he died. But he sure trained up some young men and put them out. And, and uh, he, he would talk about, and you see this exact thing in any church. He would say, in every church you have those who are standing on the promises, and then you have those who are sitting on the premises. <laughs> and that's exactly what you have in churches today. I mean, he had a little boy, had it right on the money. You have those of God's people in any church who are standing on the promises, doing what the Word of God says, and others are sitting on the premises. And that's, that's just the way it works. There's nothing you're going to do to change that. The leadership in any church will always be related directly back to what that person, uh, he or she, uh, is, gets involved in as far as giving themselves to, to God's work. It's just the way it is. It's always been that way. It'll always be that way. I'm not much for, uh, I have a lot of compassion and a lot of sympathy for people uh, that go through problems. I really do. But I'm not much in consoling whiners. Christians who whine about things, you know what you ought to do? You ought to go down to the KU Medical Center or go down to the children's hospital and go through the burn ward or watch those little kids that are 89, 6 years old that are dying of cancer. See some people who really got some problems, you'd probably stop your whining. But you know why we whine? Do you know why we whine? We whine because we're not involved in other people's problems, and that's one of the great things about dealing with other people's problems in their lives. It shows you how insignificant ours really are. Well, I'm not saying you, don't, you and I won't go through some problems, but you know what? I'm telling you, you want to keep your focus? You want to get the focus? People all the time, well, you know what? I just don't think church is friendly, and I don't think there's people there, and I think there's too many cliques, and I think this or think that. You know what? The bottom line is you only get out of something what you put into it. Every church ought to be a clique. Do you know that? Every church ought to have a clique. You ought to have at least two, God's clique and the devil's clique. And you get to decide which one you're in. I mean, I, 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 that's just the way it works. The leadership in any church and where we get out of something always goes back to what we put into it. Now, let's read our text again this morning. And we're going to move along here. And we're going to see uh, another great principle that I, it has to go with the first great principle. But let's read it again, the whole 9 through 14. He says, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me, for I look for him with the brethren. As touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with, his, with the brethren, but his will was not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have convenient time. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Let all, thing, all your things be done with charity. Now, Father, we come to you today and we ask you to take the word of God and to give us those things that we need. These are good people here today. And Lord, I, uh, I pray that uh, you'll continue to work on their heart. Help them to grasp the basic, simple context of growing in Christ. 
You only get out of something what you do. If you don't put anything in, if you don't do anything, nothing comes back. It's a simple law of physics. It helped them to understand that, that uh, the Bible says, Jesus said, if you be faithful over little things, I'll make you rule over many. And that's where it has to start. It's where it has to start with each individual in every church on this planet today. Churches are made up of people. And the, strong, the, weakest, the weakest part of that church will be the weakest person. And that's why, Father, pastors around this world need to take a stand on the Word of God. They need to preach the Word of God. They need to hold their people accountable, but yet at the same time, bring them and help them, give them every opportunity. Uh, be a tool shed that everybody that comes to that church gets every tool that they need to do the job that God has called them to do. And help us to do that. We thank you for the great open doors that you've given us in the past and the one you've given us now. And Lord, I thank you for the ones you'll give us in the future. Help us always be faithful. I almost said help us to be worthy, but we'll never be worthy. But do help us to be faithful. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now last week we saw an absolutely, I think anyhow, incredible uh, uh, concept. We talked about doors and keys, didn't we? And uh, we talked about uh, uh, and defined that. He talked about an effectual door. That's a door with an effect. And we now know through defining it last week that doors are opportunities in the Bible and keys are what you learn from the Bible that open up those doors of opportunity. Uh, we saw that. And that's a great principle. You should all have that down now. And, uh, you know, I hear it throughout the week and what you talk about and, and I like that when I see it having an impact on you. But today, uh, I want to talk about the rest of that verse. And to me, I want to talk about an equally incredible principle because these two concepts go together. If you're listening to this and you didn't hear last week, get last week and listen to them together. You can't listen to last week without this one, and you can't listen to this without last week because the two concepts go together. And uh, he set up there for a great door, and effectual is open unto me. And what I want to talk about to you today is the last part of that verse, and there are many ad adversaries. There are many adversaries. You know, it was 1972 in my life, and I had just been saved a short time, and uh, or right with God a short time, and I was, uh, you know, in awe of all that God was doing, and I knew that God wanted to do something in my life. I didn't know what it was. I was much like many of you, and uh, I, I wanted to serve God, but I was very inept at it and, and had no idea what to do, and I'd see all these guys that were older than me that were doing things, and I wanted to do that, and I didn't know how to do that, and I hear great guys coming in. That's one of the great things about my church back in Ohio. I was privileged to hear probably some of the greatest preachers of the 20th century in their last days. And I'll never forget, we had a Bible conference every year, a, a, an adult Bible conference, and they always would have uh, great preachers. And it was about 1972, and I'd only been right with God now for maybe about eight or nine months, and I got to hear uh, one of my great heroes of the faith. His name was John Rawlings. John Rawlings was the pastor of Landmark Baptist Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's called Landmark Baptist Church because it's the first and the oldest Baptist church established in Ohio. And John Rawlings was, by that time, was probably in his 60s. And old John Rawlings was one of J. Frank Norris's boys. And old John Rawlings was something else. John Rawlings was like many of those boys in Ohio to come up uh, across the Kentucky border out of the Bible Belt back in the Depression and during those period of times and, and built churches up in, in northern and central and southern Ohio. And old John Rawlings was something else. He was a true soldier for the Lord Jesus Christ. John Rawlings is somebody you didn't want to mess with. John Rawlings could preach the greatest sermons you ever heard, and he'd give you a three-star cussing right afterwards if you wanted one. 
And a lot of God's people, they, 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 and I'm not saying that you ought to be that way. I don't know that you can be that way today. But back then, it was a different breed. Back then, men were men. I'm not sure what they are today. But men back then, they, 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 they had an air about them that they loved God, they loved the Word of God, but they didn't take any crap off anybody. And old John Rawlings was that way, and I loved to hear him preach. I loved to hear him preach. And I remember one day back there at Bible conference that I was just a young guy, and he said something that at that time I did not understand. He said something at that point that I really couldn't relate to, where I was, as young in the Lord and just trying to get my feet wet. And uh, but boy, I'll tell you what, after 40-some years in the ministry, I understand what the old boy said clearly and loudly and plainly. He said up there when he was preaching, and he was, there was a bunch of young people there, much like our church today, and because uh, we were at a Mel's class, and, and uh, him and Mel were old buddies, and, and he got up there and he started kind of preaching to the, the, the young guys. And he said something, and he said, boys, he said, let me tell you something. He said, if you ever decide that you're going to take a stand for God, if you ever decide that you're going to be God's man and you're going to take a stand for him and you're going to put away everything else in your life, no matter who it may be, no matter what it may be, if you're going to give God everything in your life and you're going to take a stand for this book, and boy, he believed the book, he says the battle you're going to get into is going to make all the great battles of life look like a bunch of kids shooting marbles. Then he went on to say, he says, you know, down through history there have been some great battles. There, he listed about 30, 40 battles, just as eloquently as you ever heard in your life. He talked about the battle of Chateau Ferry. He talked about the battle of Somme. He talked about the battle of Pearl Harbor and the battle of Wake Island and the battle of Guadalcanal, all things that he had lived through. And he said, when you tie all those battles up and you look at all those battles and how bloody they were, how, how horrible they were, how terrible they were, he said, I'm going to tell you something. If you are a young man or a young lady are going to make a stand for God and going to clear up a spot in your life and says, here's where I'm going to stand, and this is the book that I'm going to stand on, he said, the battle you're going to get into is going to make all those battles look like nothing. And I'll be honest with you, at the time, I, I didn't relate to that. I, I didn't. I, well, if you'd have told me when that night day I come down and made my heart right with God and the guy dealt with me there, if you'd have told me at that point that the deacons were fighting and trying to plot to overthrow this and, and, and people out there weren't paying their bills and, 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 you know, and, and doing all these things and they were gossiping about each other and they were tearing each other up and political things were going on, well, I'd, have, I'd have fought you tooth and nail. And I said, no, this is the closer you're going to get to heaven. Not anymore. You see, you learn some things. And one of the things you learn that when God opens up a door, and this is a great verse, and this is why you got to take those verses together. When God opens up a door, there are going to be many adversaries. That's just the way it works. Now, you should know that. Remember our Bible basics class? I mean, I, I, when I taught you Bible basics, I mean, we didn't go, I mean, this verse is a great place to see one of the principles that I taught about God uh, and the devil and the Bible and history and how it works in your life. God moves, the devil moves. I showed it to you in Bible basics. I showed you how you don't go three verses in Genesis 1 before there's light and darkness. And those two have never got along the rest of the Bible. One represents God and one represents the devil. Genesis chapter 1, you saw God doing something. In Genesis chapter 1, 2, God, the devil came down and tried to stop it. In Genesis chapter uh, 2 and 3, God establishes man, put him down in the garden, started to have fellowship with him. In Genesis chapter 3, the devil came down to stop it. In Genesis chapter 4, God, uh, 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 
Uh, Adam has Cain and Abel, two boys, and they're out there, and the devil comes in and tries to stop it. You get over there into Noah with the flood, and, and God brings the sons of God down to try to stop it. You get past the flood in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, and God starts to do it again with Abraham. The devil comes down and builds the Tower of Babel. It's time after time. When Christ came in the New Testament, God sent his son. The devil sent his son, Judas, to mess things up. I mean, in church history, in the, in the book of Acts, it was the church of Antioch. That was God's church. We're the first called Christian. What did the devil do? He brought in his church, Alexandria, tried to tear it up. It's all through history. It's in everything that you do. God moves in the devil's womb. And last week I showed you our case in point was the Philadelphian church. God came down and established that church, opened a church of the open door. And what happened? They had many adversaries. By the time you get to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, the adversaries have shut that door. Now you're into the church of the closed door. Now this adversary that we're talking about here, that Paul's making a reference to, is defined for you in particular in your Bible, if you don't know this already, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And that great verse says, be sober. That means you're supposed to take things seriously. <clears throat> be vigilant. That means you're supposed to look around, look behind, look ahead. He says, be sober, <clears throat> be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, there's your adversary. Now, I'm telling you right now, at some point in your life, and I hope you all get there, but reality says you won't. At some point in your life, I hope God stirs your heart about something that God gives you to do. And I know a lot of times everybody has to go through things. Everybody has to work through things. I've seen people come here into this church, and, and you know, they come for a while, and, and uh, you know, they get, uh, fall back into the world, and, and, uh, and, then, and then they show back up, and bang, man, they're ready to go. You know why? Because some people have to work through things, and you've got to be patient with that. And my prayer and goal for everybody in this room under the sound of my voice is the fact that you just, at some point in your life, get it put together, and you start to do what God wants you to do. But I'm telling you right now, the moment you make that decision in your heart and God gives you the open door that you said, that's what I've been looking for, your adversary is going to show up. Remember what Paul said in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3 last week? We talked about it. He said, pray for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. And then he said this, for which I am also in bonds. He was in jail when he wrote that. God gave him an open door. He's praying for another open door. But the adversaries wanted to stop him, and now he's in jail. He's in prison. He's in prison for going through the door that God gave him. Why? Because I'm telling you something, my friend. Want ministry 101? Do you? You want the first basic fundamental rule of ministry 101? God opens the door. The devil shows up. God gives open doors. The devil gives great adversity. And you might as well get that set. You might as well get that fixed in your mind right now that that's exactly the way it goes because that's the way it's always going to go. And that's why so many young Christians, they get blindsided. They get the first part of the verse. They think, oh, God opened a great door. We're going to go down to homeless. We're going to do this. Or we're going to get in prayer groups. Or we're going to do that. We're going to do this. And then the moment you get excited about it, what happens? Your phone rings. It's somebody who's got an attitude toward God. It's somebody that you meet who says, oh, you're going to that church? Oh, you're going to do that? And they try to knock your legs right out from under you. 
Why? Why is that? Ministry 101. God opens the door. The adversary comes. Make friends with it. Deal with it. Realize that's the way it is when you get into the ministry. That's what separates the men from the boys. Don't get blindsided by it. Somebody says, well, what happened? What's wrong? I started to do what God wanted me to do, and then my whole world fell apart. Well, what did you expect? The devil to shake your hand and give you a, a degree and say, boy, you're really going to do good. I wish you were on my team. A couple of weeks ago on Thursday night, we talked about unclean spirits and being possessed. We now know from that that the devil can't possess you if you're saved. He can't get your soul. But today we see another whole concept of that. He may not be able to get your soul. He may not be able to possess you. But my dear friend, he sure will try to devour you. And I mean by that, he'll overwhelm you. You know how the devil works? When the Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walking about, seeking who may devour. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You're all kind of sheltered here. I understand that. I mean, you, 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 you know, you're, you're, most of you in your Christian world right now are fat, dumb, and happy. You, you don't know anything exists outside of the fun time that you have here. And that's because it, that it, it never rolls down on your shoulders. And for many, many years, it ruled just down on my shoulders. And now there's men who have raised up to take that off, and it rolls down on their shoulders. And it, that's the way it should be. But I'm telling you right now, you live kind of shouted. But if you, ever, if you ever really get into this work here with me or any work in time in your life, you're going to see what I'm talking about. I remember my first Bible study when I came. I came to Kansas City in 1976. And uh, I was pretty, pretty stupid at that point in time about the ministry. I had been with Mel for almost six years, and he taught me everything that foundationalized. I knew a lot to expect a lot of things. But, you know, even at the, even at the best, uh, even at the best, I mean, you get, I got six years under the best guy I get anybody could ever have before God sent me out. And I think that's basically the way it had to work, at least five or six years. But finally, when I got out there, I, I saw how, how I, I don't know what I'd have done if I wouldn't have had that five or six years because I was still totally unprepared. I came into Kansas City, and I, I thought everybody in the world believed the Bible just like we did in Canton, Ohio. <laughs> Boy, did I learn the reality of that. You know what it only took? It only took one Bible study. One Bible study. And I thought, man, I'm going to go in here and talk about this, talk about that, and talk about this, talk about that. And I did. And boy, I didn't get home less than an hour. My phone was ringing by parents wanting to say, what do you mean this King James Bible is the Word of God? What are you telling my kid? What do you mean over there in Genesis chapter 6, those were sons of God? What are you talking about? And I'm thinking, my God, what did I get into? So I went in to see the pastor. I figured, you know what? I might as well quit before I get started. I haven't unpacked everything yet. I can just load it back up and go back home. He just laughed at me. And I got to say this about him. He, 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 was, he was very patient with me. And he laughed and he says, he just kind of sat back and I can see it like it was yesterday. He sat back and he laughed and he put his arm across the chest and he says, well, Bob, he said, I want to tell you. He said, you're going to find out that the seat of all knowledge is not in Canton, Ohio with Mel Sabaka. Now, I knew that it was and I knew he was wrong. But that gave me what I was looking for. 
because I may not be the smartest guy in the world. My claim to fame is I am the fastest one in the slow class. <laughs> and then he said back and he said, you know what? I don't care what you teach. He says, as long as you keep a good spirit in the class, as long as you keep, you keep doing what God, you know, with those kids and you help them be a leader to them and help them do what's right, he says, I'll keep the parents off your back. He says, we don't, I don't agree with everything you teach, but you know, so you know what, that's, that's immaterial. He says, you take care of those kids, you give them a good spirit, keep a good spirit in that class, I'll keep everybody off your back. Fair enough? I said, boy, that's all I needed to hear, okay? But if you think that that's where it all ended, you're crazy. I mean, I appreciate that, but at the end of the day, I'll tell you what, I, I, got it, I got it every time I turned around. I did. I had one particular, parents were Pharisees, and Steve Brackney knows who these are. I will not mention their names because no need to. But they hated my guts. And I had been there about four or five years now, and somebody decided on Sunday night we were going to have Bible classes that parent, people in the church could come to. And, uh, you know, and so I said, okay. So every pastor took a class. Church started at 6. I think the classes started at 5. We had a month to sign up. And so I'm, I'm in the church now. been there four or five years. And, and I, I was, I was going to do the book of Revelation, see? That's just where I was at that particular point. And then everybody else was doing their thing. And there were some good classes. Well, there was this couple in the church who he was the, he was the resident Pharisee slash Bible scholar, see? And his big book was the book of Daniel. And so this guy was as boring as puke to listen to when he talked. <laughs> he was the worst speaker I have ever heard in my life. His Sunday school class, he'd been there 20-some years. His Sunday school class ran six. And that was him and his wife and four other people. <laughs> my class, after five years, was running like 250 people. So they opened this up to the church. I didn't even look at the list. I just went in. I had 345 people in my class. He had six. Want to vote on who the six were? So afterwards, a week later, he calls me on the phone. And I said, well, hi, how are you? He says, fine. He said, could I have a meeting with you? I said, sure. He said, I'm really concerned about some of your teachings. He said, I'd like to help you. And I said, well, gee, I'd love to have the help. Thank you. What, what, can I, what, can you what, what do you want to talk about? He says, well, he says, it's your style. And some of the things you say it. And I, he said, I said, okay. And he says, you know, you can't say the things you say and, be, and build anything and be successful. So he went on about 40 minutes telling me what's wrong with what I did. And he says, so I hope that. I said, I got it. I said, I got it. I said, I'm going to quit preaching the way I preach. I'm going to quit saying the things I say the way I say them. I'm going to quit doing this. I'm going to quit doing that. And I'm going to start doing this. He wanted me to take some, co- some classes at Calvary Bible College, you know. And I said, I want to do that. And I said, when it's all said and done, I'm excited because then I can run six in my Sunday school class like you got. <laughs> now, when you talk like that, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> I've only had one rule in all the years in ministry. Because I know that when God opens a door, I know when God opens a door, there's going to be adversaries. I've, had, I've always, always had one rule. No quarter asked, no quarter given. You want to take it on? Take it on. We'll see how it falls down at the end of the day. But I'm telling you, you're all kind of sheltered here. Uh, you really are. And the truth of the matter is, the devil will always try to stop you 
You see, you don't realize this yet. The devil can't touch you. The devil today, if you're saved, he cannot touch you. He cannot stop you. The devil today, if you're saved, he has absolutely, listen to me now, absolutely no power in your life. The world, absolutely. The government, (laughs) yeah. Unsaved people, no question about it. But you and me, if you're saved, if I'm saved, we belong to God. It's him that's living inside you. It's him that is, is, is the Holy Spirit of God that has saved you. And the devil can't touch you or stop you. He has absolutely no power over you. But what does he do? Then why is he so successful in our lives? Because the devil will always try to stop us by intimidating us. You see, he operates on not what you know. He operates on what we don't know. He's not going to attack you on a frontal assault when you got the front door barred and the windows barred. He's going to go around because he knows you left the back screen door unlocked. He's going to intimidate you. He's going to intimidate you with and where the things that you do not understand. The Bible says he's a roaring lion. Didn't you read that? I was in Africa a number of years ago. And I think I was in northern Africa at one point, mid-central Africa in Kenya, and then I was in Johannesburg in southern Africa. And I think South Africa is probably the beautiful part of Africa there is. And I was in South Africa, and we were working there with missionary teams, and they gave us a break on the weekend, and it was the greatest experience of my life. They actually took us into what they called a game preserve that was right in, you had to drive through the jungle with the windows up. I mean, you were into the deepest, darkest part of Africa. I mean, you're looking out the window and there's giraffes running along the side, you know, and out there. And, 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 and so we get into this place and it's got a big steel high fence all the way around it. And it's, it's inside, it's like a plush resort place. But it's all fenced in. And at night, they close that gate and you're in there sleeping in a Holiday Inn, five-star stuff with great meals, but all around you, and the place is huge. It's probably as big as this whole corner of our, our, of our, our intersection here. It's probably bigger than that. And it's got bungalows and everything is absolutely first class. But right outside those gates, man, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I heard a lion roaring out there, and he, he sounded like he was right next to my window. I could walk up to the thing and look down the river, and I saw the biggest crocodile. I thought they were submarines. They were so big. It's just like any Tarzan movie you ever heard. You can hear the monkeys out there chirping and, you know, chopping and, you know, yeah, 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 you know, all that stuff, man. Oh, uh, uh, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> but I'm laying there in bed, you know, and I'm thinking, what a great place. And all that time I did it. Man, he was close. And boy, I tell you what, it put the hair up in the back of my neck. I thought about that many times after I read 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. You know what, what Christianity is like? When you got saved, When you got saved, God put a big fence around you. And all the devil can really do at night is roar out there in the darkness. But if you don't know that the gate's locked and the gate's up and the fence is up, it'll scare the fire out of you. And that's how he does. That's how he does. Haunted houses are big this time of year. And haunted houses are really kind of a scary thing. You go through there and people in suits, you know it's fake, you know it's phony. But it scares the fire out of you. 
You walk in this room and you hear these moans and groans coming from out of here somewhere in the dark and, and, and you're running into things hanging from the ceiling and you're absolutely scared. But you take a big flashlight, better yet, mount a flashlight on the, under the barrel of a Glock. <laughs> Suddenly you're not afraid anymore. It's the darkness and the unknown that always makes us afraid. Now, when it deals with your adversary, the devil, it's the darkness and the unknown of what you don't know about the Bible that he uses. And that's how he stops you. It's exactly how he stops us. He'll always try to stop you by intimidating you. And if you ever do anything at all for God, you're going to, in time, I mean, let's face it, you're going to rub people the wrong way. I don't care. You're just, some of you, you have... You have friends, either who you work with or friends in your life or friends that are your family or whatever. And right now, if you really took a stand for God and really did what was right in your life, you'd lose them. That was Paul's biggest problem he had to deal with. And it'll be our biggest problem. You know why? Because with great opportunity of God opening doors comes great adversity. That's why. It's a fact of life. It's the reality of ministry. Get used to it. Deal with it. Make friends with it. You know, one time I, my, another fun time I had in my life is I went down to the Rattlesnake Roundup down in Texas, and that is fun. Those guys in this one place must have brought in 6,000 rattlesnakes. I mean, and, they, they, and then they eat them. And I mean, tell you what, that's where I bought me a rattlesnake, all stuffed, curled up, you know, ready to strike. I've given that rattlesnake many names over the years, people that I knew, but anyway... <clears throat> And I'm down there, you know, and I, there's this old guy, man, and he must have been 60, 70 years old. And I, 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 he's got rattlesnakes everywhere. And I'm talking to him, and I'm just fascinated, you know, and I said, man, I said, how do you get so many rattlesnakes and never have been bit? He said, oh, I've been bit. He said, I've been bit probably 40 times. And I said, well, why are you still alive? I mean, I thought they were poisonous. Oh, they are. He says, but any true rattlesnake handler, he'll take, He'll take a little bit at a time of the rattlesnake venom and you keep digesting it and put it into your system. And after a while, if you do it in small doses, it builds up your system that when you get bit with a rattlesnake, that it doesn't affect you. I mean, you may get sore and swollen, but it, doesn't, it ain't going to kill you because you have got your body adapted by the venom that you have been taking up and you got yourself uh, built to the place where you can resist the venom of a rattlesnake. I thought to myself, well, that's pretty good. I, that, that's you guess you better do that if you're going to do it. But I thought about that later. You know, that, that's what we all need to do as Christians. You know, there's some rattlesnakes out there who want to bite you. You know what the Bible does? The Bible is your anti-venom. You get the biblical principles in your life, and you learn what the Bible says about your adversary and who he's going to use and what he's going to use and how he's going to stop you. When they do bite you, it doesn't hurt nearly as bad. There's just things that you need to think about if you're going to get into ministry. Well, I'm telling you, with great opportunity comes great adversity. It does. And I'll tell you something else. You never want to look at adversity or, or, or adversaries as a bad thing. I don't think. I don't think. I mean, some of God's people, you get defeated before you even get started. I mean, you really do. And I, I feel sorry for you. I mean, you do. But I, I would think that, I mean, uh, don't ever be afraid of it as long as you're doing what's right. Now, I mean, I guess I better address that. I realize that a lot of our adversity that we bring on, we bring on ourselves because we don't do what's right. 
I mean, if you don't, you know, you don't do what's right in your own personal life, you don't do what's right with your family, you don't do what's right with people, Bible says have a good conscience toward man and God. I mean, you can't go around life and not pay your bills and stiff everybody you owe with money and do this and do that and somebody just think you're going to wake up someday and no, you're not going to have, and then when you do have adversity, say, oh, it's because I'm in the ministry. No, it's because you're an idiot and you didn't do what was right and you want to blame it on something else when in reality it was your own fault. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you standing on the book, having a good conscience between man and God, doing what you're supposed to do with, between man and God, that's going to be enough to get you clobbered. But Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says that all things work together for good. I personally think you ought to wear that as a badge of honor. In fact, I'll tell you something else. You ain't going to like this, but I'll tell it to you. If you've been saved five years or more, and I always say that because that's how long it took me to really get out of there in five or six years, I always give you a five or six-year break. Figure it takes you that long to figure it out. That's what it took me. But I'll say this. If you've been saved five or six years, uh, and you haven't got two crowds in your world, one who loves you and the other one who hates you, you better look at your life. I think you might be compromising someplace. You actually think that they hated Christ, they put him on the cross, they were after him every chance they got, and they wanted to kill him, they wanted to beat him up, they wanted to, every step the scribes and the Pharisees took to try to get him, trap him, talk about him, talk about he was an illegitimate bastard son, talk about the fact of his mother and his father and everything that he did, and then you skate through life and I skate through life as a Christian and nobody ever says boo to us, and then we're Christ-like? You need a psychiatrist. Let me give you three great verses quickly here. And these are verses, are, these are anti-venom right here. You want some anti-rattlesnake venom? And boy, there's some snakes out there. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says, Perfect love casteth out fear. That's a great verse. So that means you perfect your love with God. And when you love God, then you learn all about God. You get to understand the patterns of God. You get to know who God is. It casts out fear. You're not afraid of anything. Or I should say you're not afraid of anything you shouldn't be afraid of. Here's another great one, Isaiah 26, 3. But thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Why? Because he trusteth in thee. See? 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, greater is he that is in you that is in the world. That's a great one. See, those three verses are anti-venom. When your adversary shows up and God opens the opportunity, what are you going to do? You're going to put your tail between your legs all the rest of your life and run from what God wants you to do. Are you really? Are you really? Uh, you've got to be like a whipped little puppy because somebody says something about you or they don't like you or they don't like what you said or they don't like where you go to church or they don't like this or they don't like that. Are you actually the rest of your life going to put your tail between your legs, pee a little spot on the floor like a dog scared and then run off in the closet someplace? Listen, if you're doing what's right with people in that book and you're preaching what God tells you to preach and you're doing it by the book and your life personally is clean and where it needs to be, never and I mean never, and I mean never, never, never get nervous or let it bother you what people think or say about you, whether they're saved or whether they're lost. Listen, kid, if you got God's hand in your life and your blessings in, his, in your life and people are being saved and lives are being changed and lives are being transformed, what do you care what somebody else thinks about it other than God? I mean, come on. I mean, in other words, if you're winning people to Christ, don't take too seriously what people who never went anybody to Christ think about you. Give them Proverbs 11.30. I mean, if you're involved in people's lives and actually a part of letting God use you and help them, 
And you don't ever let people who are not part of anybody's life, who never work with anybody, ever influence you or, uh, and by what they think or what they say. Hey, let me tell you something. Don't ever let people who don't come to church or hardly ever come to church ever tell you how to run a church. And then care less what they think when you say, no, thank you. Thank you for your concern, but no, thank you. Don't ever let people who don't, who don't give anything to your church come around and try to get into the finances and tell you how you ought to be spending the church's money. Get out of here. Get out of here. But that's what happens. People get power. They want to push their weight around. They want to come in and they want to say, well, we want to see this. Well, you can see whatever you want to see. Just bring your giving record when you come. That'll cut down the line. You know, I got this way not by any my own fault. Maybe it was. When I was a young man growing up and paying my dues, I realized that one of the things I was going to have to do is to become fluent in church history. I knew that church history was really the key, along with the Bible, to putting it all together. And I realized that, as I think most pastors have to do, and really every Christian has to do, but they won't, I think you ought to be able to speak church history like you speak your own native English language. I think you ought to eat, sleep, and drink it. I think you ought to see everything in the world and run it back through the Word of God and what's going on. I think that's the key. We like to talk about the God of prophecy. Well, the God of prophecy is also the God of history. And you can't have one without the other. And I, I, so I started to go through that, and I saw very clearly God gave me at least a, enough sense to see that. And I, I began to go through it, tie it into my Bible. And in doing so, I got something out of it I never expected to get. And I just it, just, it just happened. It just came about. It was not my goal, but it absolutely, and I'm not, you know, it's a thing where uh, when I saw it, it, it absolutely just captivated me. When coming through church history, looking at the things that a man has to have or a woman has to have to face the adversity, when God opens up a door, because the verse is a compound verse, God opened up a factual door, but there are many adversaries. You can't take one without the other. And over the course of 10 to 15 years, I kept bumping into four men in church history. And God took these four men and, and me, in my life at that particular point in time, it's changed somewhat. They were my role models. I think every kid had to have role models. I think the first role model a kid had to have is his father. I think that's a, a good role model. It doesn't happen very often, but I think it ought to be. And then his dad had to lead him to other role models and, in the Bible. And some of your kids who grow up with their role models will be sports figures, fornicating, drug-taking sports figures, who you're going to tell your kid you want to grow up and be like that. You mean I want you to grow up and be good in sports. The kid doesn't see it that way. He looks at the sports and the drugs, and that's exactly what he becomes. After all, maybe, come to think of it, maybe the role model was his father. I don't know. But I, I, I began to see that role models are important, and these men began to be role models for me. Because as I was in ministry and I didn't know nothing and I was learning through this thing, I saw that these four men, one, had what it took and two, they got the job done. And they became, I remember asking God and I personally, I don't think God ever answered this prayer in my life, but I remember asking God to mold me in these areas of my life. I remember as a young guy sitting down there and studying their lives and afterwards saying, God, sitting back in that chair looking up at the ceiling thinking to myself, my goodness, 
where did all that go today? And God help me, help me to put that area in my life, in ministry. Uh, you know, I, 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 to be faithful in me. I, I never wanted a big ministry. I don't want one today. I'm not looking for a church of 10,000. If I had a church of 10,000, I'd sell it tomorrow with the people with it, $100 a head. That's not my goal. My goal is not to see how many people I can get come to church. I have one goal in my life that I want to do that I fail miserably at it most of the time, but it's the one goal that all I care about, and that is to stay faithful to what God's called me to do. I don't care about anything else. And I can remember asking God to mold me, these guys' character in my life, to show me, that make me faithful. And I'm first to tell you, uh, I don't, per- personally, I don't think God did that. Uh, maybe that, that wasn't the right kind of prayer. I don't know. But boy, did I ever learn some things. And that was worth the trip right there. I looked at old Martin Luther. You know, Martin Luther, he was not a very good theologian. Most people look at guys like Martin Luther and, and uh, you know, they, 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 they don't be able to put it together. He, his theology was not his main stick. Uh, his main stick was courage. And old Martin Luther was an incredible guy. And old Martin Luther, you know, he's been said of Luther that he never feared the face of man. I believe that. I believe that. He lived around 1483 to 1546. He was an old hard-headed kraut, brother, who you couldn't tell anything. And when he got fixed on something, that's what it was. And uh, his open door that God gave him was the Reformation. And that Reformation, because of Martin Luther, became the key to history from 1500 on. And he was a Roman Catholic priest caught up in the travesty of the Roman Catholic Church back in that day. But Martin had no peace in his life. <clears throat> he had no peace of God, with God in his life, and he struggled. And he read all that and heard all that the Catholic Church taught him, and he had to make penance of himself to be accepted of God. So Martin whipped himself till he bled. He sought penance by crawling up uh, the cathedral steps, which numbered about 200 steps, on his knees four or five times a day till his knees bled. Martin found no satisfaction, and one day he started reading the Bible. Right place, right man, right timing. And he opened up the Romans. Romans was his favorite book. He used to call Romans his Catherine, because that was his wife's name. And one day he read in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the just shall live by faith. And at that point, he got it. At that point, God opened up the, the lights of heaven, and old Martin Luther found Christ as his own personal Savior. He led the world to a new level and single-handedly opened a door to the Philadelphian church age in 1600. But my dear friend, did he ever pay a price? You see, God gave him the door. But boy, the adversity came. And the adversity came from the Roman Catholic Church. They, they, they went after him with everything that he had. He was a young, in, 15, in 1515, he, I, I stood in Wittenberg, Germany at the church, the Wittenberg Church. And there he walked up the steps and on that church door, same door, same door there to the 1540s, he nailed his 95 thesis, 95 things that the Bible taught that the Roman Catholic Church were not teaching that he was taking a stand on. Boy, did it hit the fan. It hit the fan. In Heidelberg in, in April 26, 1518, he's brought before the Roman Catholic Council and he makes one of the most brilliant defenses. There's more information written about Martin Luther than any other man in church history. And he's an incredible guy. Like I said, theology was not his great deal. But brother, he was a preacher. 
that when God needed somebody to break the back of the Roman Catholic Church and take the stand and open up the door and let go through that door that everybody else that was going to go through after him, he found it in Martin Luther. And boy, I'll tell you what, he made a brilliant defense. In 1521, he was called before the, the Catholic, German Catholic Council at Worms, Germany to answer the question of heresy. They had put a death warrant on him. He turned the witness stand into a pulpit. And instead of getting up and defending himself and telling me how it wrong, he took that thing and took that, and for the next two hours, he preached the fire out of them based on what the Bible said about salvation. He had a death warrant put on him. He closed that great statement and that great preaching there in, uh, in uh, Worms, Germany. He, he closed that thing, it said, by holding up his hands, and he said, on these I stand. God, give me the grace. I can do no otherwise. Boy, he meant it. He meant it. At the end of his life, he had firmly established three things in mainland Europe. He established that salvation was by faith and faith alone. He established that every Bible believer that saved was a priest. And he established alone that the Bible was man's final authority. In fact, he's responsible for the German people getting the first King James Bible in German with Martin Luther's translation. One of his friends said one time, he says, Martin, don't you know the whole world's against you? He looked back and snarled, that I'm against the whole world. That's the courage that he had. That's the courage that he had. Because with an open door comes much adversity. Then I, 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 looked, at, I looked at the counter to that would have been George Whitfield. And where you find courage with Martin Luther, you find compassion with George Whitfield. George Whitfield lived 1734 to 1770. He's called the Prince of Preachers. He'd preach seven times a day. Between him and Jonathan Edwards, they really formed the Constitution of the United States with our founding fathers with their preaching. But oh, oh, George Whitfield never missed an opportunity to preach God's Word to the lost. So he goes, he stayed in, uh, preaching at a, a place one time and he stayed with some people who were lost and they, they came to church but they would not get saved. And he was very burdened for them. And after this last service, he was getting ready to leave the next morning. It was a very cold January morning and the frost was all over the window. And George Whitfield, as he left, he, he, this family was a very rich family, very influential family, a family that had it all, you know, but didn't want God. And old, Mark, and old, uh, old Whitfield, before he left, took a ring on his finger Scratched on that window, yet thou lackest one thing, which is a quotation out of Luke chapter 18. The woman came up about two hours later to clean up the room, and by that time the sun had come up, and you know how it is when a frost window, all that had melted down there in big letters was, yet thou lackest one thing. She called her husband up. They come up and stuck to that thing, and they fell on their knees and trusted Christ, their own personal Savior. He never missed an opportunity. He never did. I remember one time he preached on the Boston Commons. 30,000 people got saved. In fact, in the Boston Common, there's a little plaque down there. I tried to find it for four or five years. I'd go to, I went to Boston on a regular basis almost every year preaching, and I, I would try to find that plaque because I wanted to stand where he stood. I asked every park ranger. I asked everybody, and nobody knew where it was. And then I found one old guy who cut the lawn who knew where it was, and he walked me over there, and it was 50 feet where I was, but it was all covered over. And I took the time to pull it all around. There's a little plaque right there. It says, on this day in 17, whenever it was, George Whitfield preached and 30,000 people came to Christ. On that spot, that's compassion. 
He's rejected by the established church. You might know that. He preached in the woods. This is where the idea of open-air camp meetings came from. He preached one time, and a man come up with a pistol and put that gun right in front of his face and said, if you don't stop your blankety-blank preaching, I'm going to blow your blankety-blank head off. Whitfield just kept on preaching. The guy walked around for a while, stuck the guns in different places on his head and his body, and Whitfield just kept on preaching. Guy backed off about 10 paces, cocked the pistol, put it right to his face and pulled the trigger. The gun exploded, killed the man, blew the jacket off of Whitfield. He finished the message. <laughs> Compassion. Compassion. They don't make them like that anymore. He preached his last message on the balcony of his sick room, 1770, where 2,000 people had gathered to hear him just one more time. He was weak. He was frail. The weather was very cold. But he preached one last sermon and scores came to Christ. And then he crawled back in his bed and he died two hours later. You see, his open door was the great awakening. God moved, the devil moved. God moved to bring the, the word of God into America. And then the devil moved and brought back then what was Unitarianism, which was spreading through Europe and destroying what the great Reformation had started. And it came over on a tale of Whitfield. But Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards stopped it dead in his tracks. And they're credited, he's credited with the first great awakening in America. The open door, the chance for that Bible to go to the next level and finally make its way to you and to me. It's incredible. But God opened a door, but there was much adversity. Then I, I, I saw and asked God for the commitment of a David Brainerd. 1718 to, what, 1747. Missionary to the American Indians in New York and Pennsylvania probably one of the greatest examples of what's lacking in God's people today, commitment. Commitment with any kind of intelligence. Commitment to God's uh, calling in our lives. By modern standard, he was a failure. If he'd go to the big churches today and they'd just take him on his record, they wouldn't even leave him in the door. He never established any work. He never built any church. He never had a great work. He never saw thousands ever come to Christ. He never even learned a language. His health was so poor. One time he had to preach through a drunken interpreter to a bunch of Indians. The man was so drunk he could hardly stand, but that's all he had, and he preached the word of God through a drunken interpreter, and scores of Indians were saved. He's an incredible guy. Incredible guy. Never built any work. Never did anything meaningfully. Prayed long hours in the, in the snow-covered pine trees of New York and Pennsylvania. One time, years and years ago, Mel and I was up in Rochester, New York. Really, it was Five Fingers Lake, which was north of Rochester, right up in the area where he was. And it was in February. <clears throat> we were up at a lodge in a camp, way up, in, a, up in, a, in, a, in the mountains, up in the hills, overlooking the lakes. And one morning, Mel got up, woke me up, and he says, come on, I'm gonna, let's go out here. And, and I said, man, it's freezing out there. He says, come on, put your coat on, let's go. So we tramped through the snow, and I'll tell you what, the, the pine trees were just as thick as you could ever see. And uh, they were covered with snow. And I have never heard under those pine trees a more deafening silence. I mean, the snow in them trees, you could hear nothing. And we sat down there, and I still didn't know what was going on. And he looked over at me, and he said, just, just sit here for a minute. And he told me the story of David Brainerd. And he said, this may be the very, one of the very spots where he prayed. Because you could pray under that kind of a tree, brother, because you didn't hear nothing. And God even whispered you could hear what he said. He died 29 years old of consumption. Never did a thing. Never did a thing. Never really established anything. But it was his commitment, you see. 
And after his death, they found his diary. We have a copy of it in the bookstore. It's called The Diary of the Journal of David Brainerd. His commitment, his dedication, his self-sacrifice stirred the hearts of millions of people for the next 300 years. And you know what? William Carey, great missionary, called the father of modern missions, went to India. Robert McShane went to the Middle East. Henry Martin also went to India. They turned the world upside down. You know why they turned the world upside down? All of them got the burden by reading the diary of David Brainerd. All of them got a hold of that, his commitment and his sacrifice, his self-sacrifice and what he did and the door God gave him was the open door to missions around the world and yet he never even saw it. And yet if we would look at him today by the standards of what we have in churches today, he was a total failure. I guarantee you something. I guarantee you when old David Brainerd went up to heaven and he met the Lord, the Lord looked down at him and put his arm around him and David kind of put his head down. He said, Lord, I sure didn't do very well for you. I'm really sorry. I really messed it up. I, I, I didn't get the language learned. I, I died when I was 29. You know, I, I just got married to my wife and it, nothing worked out there and, and I was sick all the time. I tried my best. I didn't get anything done. I prayed and prayed and prayed. I, I had a few converts, but I had, Lord, I am so sorry. I, I wished I'd have done better with the time that you gave me. And the Lord says, come here, let me show you something. God walked him over there. Look down there. You know who that is? That's William Carey. He's reading your diary. See that over here? That's Robert McShane. He's reading what you went through. See that guy down here? That's Henry Martin. David, let me tell you something. Sometimes you don't all get it down here. Sometimes you don't get it till you get up there. You know, I need guys to go out and do great things, but I need some people that don't get anything done. They just put down on paper what their burden was at their heart, and I'll take that. And David, you're going to get credit for everything that they did at the judgment seat of Christ. You know why? Because it was your burden that became their burden. That was first my burden. Then I think of the faith of a George Mueller. Yeah, when God opens a door, there's going to be adversity. And you better have these four things in your life if you're going to make it. Old George Mueller lived 1805 to 1858, born and raised in Germany in Prussia. He lived a life of sin and crime before he was saved, but he was converted in a Bible study in a private home and got a, immediately got a burden for the lost people around him. He too was rejected by the intellectual, tried to get into the London Missionary Society, but they would not take him. And he preached wherever God throughout England would give him an open door. He saw by that time the big need was orphan children, homeless children, all on the streets of England. And he got a burden for them. He, spent, he opened his first orphanage in 1835 with 26 girls. By 1870, he had built five large orphanages, feeding and ministering to homeless of his day, over 2,200 kids. The most amazing thing about George, George Mueller is the fact that he solicited no financial help from anybody. Never asked one time. Never took up an offering. Never went to a church. Never asked anybody for anything. He only told the Lord his daily needs. It is said that he read the Bible through over 200 times. 100 of that on his knees. In all his life of 63 years of ministry, he alone with God prayed in over $7.5 million. Never one time looked outside of God for his help. 
At the end of his life, over 121,000 kids were cared for and won to Christ and saved, and over 5,000 of those had went into the ministry or into the mission field. And when he died at 93 years old, his personal estate was less, worth less than $100. See how it works? Boy, I saw these guys. I never expected to get that out of church history. I thought it was just a bunch of dates, facts, and figures. But you see, he did what God wanted him to do. He just went through the doors as God gave them to him with only two things, God and the Word of God. But they all paid a price. And you know, I think the real question for us, I think the real question for you and for me that has to be pondered today, uh, certainly have to be pondered at some time in your life. Maybe you've ever already pondered and you've already made up your mind. I think the real question for us is not, are we willing to serve God? I think the real question is, are we willing to pay the price to serve God? Because with a great open door comes a great adversity. And it's going to happen. Listen, wherever there's movement of any kind, there's friction. Based on the Bible and what it says, if you've been saved five years or more, as I said, and you don't have a crowd that loves you and a crowd that hates you, I'd check it out. I think there's something wrong someplace. That's one of the cold, hard, undeniable facts of the Bible and history, driven home by the verse. God opened a great effectual door, but you're going to have many, many, many adversaries. And I'm not, I'm not talking about, as I said, causing problems because we're stupid. I'm talking about causing problems because of the fact that we have made a stand that we're going to do what God wants us to do. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. And that's why I, 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 I drove, drive home those 11 concepts in Bible basics. You'll see them at work fundamentally in everything you do, in every aspect of the Bible, in every event of the Bible, in every event of world history, in every event in your life. God wants to use you. The devil wants to stop you. And he will know uh, he can't hurt you, but he knows that we are so shallow in the Word of God and the principles that when you hear him roar out there in the middle of the night, you just stop what you're doing and get more focused on the roaring than you do what God's called you to do. Courage is an incredible thing lacking today in God's people. God's people are spineless today. Nice people, spineless. If I had to go into combat today, I'd just as soon have a good German shepherd in the foxhole with me than most of God's people. Joshua chapter 1 talks about courage to believe the book, courage to obey the book, courage to rest in the book. When God opens a great door and effectual, there's going to be many, many, many adversities that come along with it. This is where God, as I said, separates the men from the boys. Now, when it comes to your adversary and it comes to the adversity that you're going to face because you... God gives you an open door in your life. My suggestion is to follow the biblical principles. Remember in Matthew chapter 4? Matthew chapter 4, Christ had come down to do God's work. He was born of a virgin. He was Israel's king. God opened up a door for him to come down. That door is in John chapter 10 if you want to find it. Now when God opened up that door, came the great adversity. The first thing the devil tried to do was stop the messenger. And that's what he'll do with you. If you read Matthew chapter 4, down there through 1 through 11, we're not going to look at it this morning, you'll find that the devil comes to him three times and tries to get him to quit. I like this because the Bible says the first time it talks about him, it doesn't call him the devil. It calls him the tempter. I like that. You know why? Because the moment God gives you an open door, he's going to give you a tempter. 
And that tempter is going to be, devil's going to give you a tempter. And that tempter is going to be somebody that comes into your life, calls you on the phone, comes over to see you. You meet in a shopping place someplace. You meet out of the thin air that you haven't seen for whatever. And they're going to start to take out of your life what God tried to put in. That's the way it works. And I think Jesus' response is our response because in each time, and I told you this Thursday night, we looked at Psalms 91, and I told you we'd talk about it Sunday. There's three things that he comes and he deals with Christ on. One in Deuteronomy 8.3, one in the Psalms 91.12, and one in Deuteronomy 6.3. And they all have to do with the second coming of Christ. But that beside the point, every time the devil came, the tempter came and tempted him, Jesus' response was clear, decisive, and right to the point. He simply said, it is written. He took him right back to the Bible because the Bible has no stand against the Word of God. It's when you and I start to do the old Baptist two-foot shuffle. It's when we start to make other things up and put other things in and justify ourselves and try to get around what we don't want to deal with. That's when the devil has a heyday. If you clearly stand up and you just take the biblical principle to whoever or whatever your tempter is and simply say, this is what the Bible says. I'm not sure why you're not doing it, but I am sure I'm going to do it. That'll end the problem. If not the first time, the second time. If not the second time, third time's a charm. You ever see the devil? He came once, it is written. Two, it is written. Third time, it is written. The devil left him. You know why? Because your tempter knows that he has nothing that he can do outside that Word of God. It's only when we get outside the Bible. Jesus did exactly what you and I should do when the adversary comes, and whoever it may be. He applied James chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. You see, if you submit yourself to God first, you have to do that before you can even ever resist the devil. Now, here's the problem. Most of God's people today in the world, they're just too good a friend with the devil to do that. They just are. And this is exactly how it will come to you. And this is exactly what you've got to be prepared for. Because God's got something he wants to do with you. Maybe it's an operation homeless. Maybe it's in some other area of your life. I don't know. It just happens to be that that's where we're at in the book when we're at in our church. But I'm telling you this, when God opens the door, there are many adversaries. So just expect it. Just realize it. Don't get blindsided. Because if you don't up the speed on it, you're going to get discouraged. You're going to say, well, what's God doing? God's doing exactly what's been going on for the last 6,000 years. God moves and the devil moves. Remember that roaring lion? He's outside. The gate's locked. It's fenced. He can't get in only in your fears and your dreams. When that didn't work, then he attacked the message of the messenger. And that's when his buddies, the scribes and the Pharisees, got into it. They became the tempters. And they dogged him, didn't they? They dogged him every day. They said things about him that were terrible. They lied about him. They told half-truths about him. They just told, said everything about them because their ulterior motive was they wanted to stop the work because they had what they wanted going and they didn't want Jesus taking that away from them. And boy, I'll tell you what. When it didn't work to attack the message, messenger, they attacked the message. And that's where they jumped in. And again, for time and eternity, will you ever get it? Will you ever understand this? Those who do nothing 
will always criticize those who do something. You just got to get that. But at the end of the day, it didn't work either. It meant nothing. Because no matter what they say about you, no matter what they try to do to you like they did Christ, no matter what they say about me, this church, or anybody else, remember what we read in Revelation chapter 4, that the church of the open door, that God opened a door, and God said, no man shall shut it. You don't have to be afraid about what people say about you. You don't have to be afraid of what people say about anything in the ministry that you may do. If God truly opened a door, then it's God's door. Now, if you open the door and it's your deal, then it's your worry. But if God opened a door and God is in charge, then God opened a door and no man, no man, no man on this earth is going to shut that door. The devil will roar. He'll make a lot of noise. He'll make all kinds of noises. He'll scare, try to scare the fire out of you. But at the end of the day, with Christ, it meant nothing. All the abuse, all the beating, all the spitting, all the beard pulling, all the whipping, and they finally crucified him, it absolutely stopped nothing. And in your life and my life, when God's got his hand on you and God is doing something through you and God has given you an open door, don't get nervous about the loud roars of the lion or what anybody says about you or tries to discourage you. The bottom line is simply this. If God opened a door, no man is going to shut it. Your job is just to go through it and get the job done. Just go through the door that God gave you. Remember, he's a roaring lion. Remember, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he may be able to devour everything on this planet, but he can't devour you and me. The devil will never stop you. The devil will never be able to stop me. If we get stopped, it's because we will stop ourselves by not doing what the Word of God says. Remember, he's a roaring lion. But Christ on the cross took what the devil had for you and me. And today as I stand with all due respect to the devil and his due as the anointed cherub, let me tell you something. He got declawed and he got detoothed at Calvary. He can't claw me anymore and he can't bite me anymore. All he can do is growl out in the darkness, but he can never devour us because God opened a door. No man is ever going to shut it. Father, help us to see that. Help us to learn that with a great open door comes great adversity. And Lord, we do love you. Help these men and women in this church, the younger ones. Help them to continue to grow. Help the older ones to continue to grow. Help us to all to, to realize that no matter what, uh, Lord, uh, you've given us a job to do. And if it's not this, it's something. But you have something. You brought us here for some reason, for some purpose. And, Lord, I don't care if it's somebody that walked in the door for the first time today. There's a place that they can start on whatever level they are and grow from there. And with great adversity or great open doors comes great adversity. And we need to learn those two concepts because we will not walk through this door unscathed. We will not walk through this door with people out there uh, saying things and, and, and people, the devil, trying to stop. But all he can do is roar. He can roar loud and he can roar ferociously. But at the end of the day, he can't touch us. Help us to claim those promises and know that this is your church, that we are your people. And Father, we trust in you that when you give us the door, open the door, Truly, no man is going to shut it. Doesn't matter who he is, no matter who he thinks he is. We've seen it all my life, Father. I've seen him. I've seen everything that ever God's ever given me. Somebody stand up and try to take it away or try to shut it down, and it just has never happened. After 40-some years of going through the fire, I am still standing here. 
Lord, this church will go on because of the stand we take on the Word of God. And we'll thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. Hey, folks, don't forget this week, bring in your hot dogs. Joe's crew wants to meet him up here. Check out, don't forget to sign up for the marriage book back there if you want one, or check out the Halloween tracks. But don't forget, bring hot dogs and buns Thursday night, as many as you can, and we'll get everything going. God bless you. People who are getting food, make sure you have meat. Let me know by Thursday where we're at with it all.